I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Leanne Bashara, a clinical psychology PhD candidate and photographer. Her current project, The Couch, is aimed at artistically portraying the therapeutic process while also bringing awareness to mental health treatment. She says, My hope for this project is that you will experience the very real fears and beauties that come along with mental health treatment. Self-reflection, self-awareness, and internal healing may logically be understood to be purposeful and curative, but emotionally the experience can be unbearable. Suffering is involved when revisiting our past pains, and it takes strength and courage for us to be willing to go there. This project honors all the individuals who have embarked on the treacherous and brave journey of healing. The couch is both a tribute and a documentation of that sacred process. Leanne pursued psychoanalytic training at the Psychoanalytic Center of California and a fellowship with the San Diego Psychoanalytic Center. She is passionate about distilling the stigma of psychoanalysis and making psychoanalytic theory and treatment accessible and understandable to all. Her project, The Couch, was inspired in part by her own analysis. As a clinician, she is drawn towards serving the active duty military and veteran community. She is a recipient of the Army Health Professions Scholarship and has recently been commissioned into the U.S. Army to serve as a clinical psychologist. Leanne is currently completing her internship and postdoctoral residency at Brooke Army Medical Center where she supports the behavioral health needs of service members and their families. She continues to photograph for her project, The Couch, from her home in San Antonio, Texas. You can follow her and The Couch on Instagram at Lebish Psychology, L-E-B-I-S-H-P-S-Y-C-H-O-L, O-G-Y, or email her at lebishphotography at gmail.com to be a part of the project. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, 
patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Caro. That's V A N E S S A 23 C A R L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Sure. Well, I think um, the only thing I can really think about starting is what's been on my mind recently, which I think makes this a true analytic discussion, right? Uh, we recently moved here into a new home, and I, I believe that you're, you were in the process of moving as well. Yep. Um, but this is our first time not only owning a home, but living in a home. And in the process of us moving in and settling, it's really got me thinking uh, about some things. Um, just the process of entering into a space that, that used to belong to someone else, you know, where another family created memories where they built a life and really created something for themselves here. And now we're walking into that space and inheriting all that they've done to it, uh, taking on all that they created, the, the good and the bad, which was theirs. It belonged to them. And then now suddenly it belongs to us. <laughs> and our task is to uh, adapt to that and, and rework it and really make it our own. And it's been a challenge. I mean, I, I don't think anything is ever truly a creation of our own doing. It's always an adaptation or a byproduct of something that came before us, like a descendant of something or someone that already existed. Um, but with every change I make, I mean, certainly I don't like everything about this house. I mean, <laughs> there are changes that I'm making to it. Um, but with every change that I make, I can't help but think about, you know, what am I erasing or what am I removing from this home that they built? You know, am I erasing a memory of theirs? Um, and I tend to feel some guilt over that, like I'm erasing their memories. Um, but the hardest part has been, I would say, taking what they created, uh, what they made of this home and now making it my own and, and living in that space while also honoring all that came before me. Um, now, of course, I'm talking about a physical space, a physical home, but it just reminds me of our clinical work because akin to our clinical work and in, in the therapeutic encounter, in the therapeutic space, we are inside of someone's emotional home, right? We're immersed in their internal world, uh, inside the homes that they grew up in, the homes that they were raised in. We are accessing those very homes in the transference emotionally. I think we, we have the opportunity to witness how they are raised and what it, what it felt like to be them, what it felt like as children to be in those homes. Mm -hmm. And as clinicians, it just reminds me that we first enter those homes as intruders because we're essentially strangers to their lives. But eventually over time, I think a room gets built in that home for us. We take up a special space in our patients' homes, in their lives. And I think about the, my emotional home and all the patients that it houses. I think our patients just simply want to impact us. They want to take up space and make emotional contact with us and want to believe that they matter, that we think about them outside of session time or that we think about them after we've terminated, um, that they are on our minds. So even when I was thinking about where to start here, uh, with my work as a psychologist, I, I don't think I can really 
start anywhere without acknowledging all those that came before me, those that have impacted me, those that are housed within me, which include my, my analysts, my patients, my supervisors, my colleagues, my family, my friends, all have a room in this emotional home. And I carry them with me, they're a part of me. And each person that enters into my home, I should say, changes it, changes what was there before. So although the foundation remains the same, I think with each newcomer comes an inevitable shift, which is good. It indicates that they've made an impact on my life. The people in my life change me because they matter to me. And it indicates movement, pressure, force, something tangible because they hold weight in my life. So I bring this up because, you know, as I was reflecting on what to share today, I think being in this new space, and given the, the changes that I'm making to this home, the shifts that I'm making to this home, I can't help but think about the people that are inside of me that have made shifts internally within me as well. Um, and I know, I know you recently moved as well. So I don't know if you felt anything similar of being in this new space and now suddenly having to make it your own home and make it special to you, even though you can see the residue on the walls. You can see the cracks that someone else made. You, you can see, you know, the damage, quote unquote, that, that um, is built into this home. And then, and now you, you're inheriting it and having to do something with it. So I don't know if you're willing to share about your experience with moving, but that's kind of what's been on my mind recently in the process of, of moving here. No, I think it's really beautifully put. And I think I definitely resonate with that experience when we first came into this home. I felt like it felt like really strange to put my things up. Actually, mm -hmm. I felt like I was changing it. And I was like, like, I, like, I shouldn't, I felt like I shouldn't in some ways. And for us, the, the person we bought the house from, uh, he had done a lot, he had lived here for 20 years with his wife. And they had done a lot of renovations. And you could, mm -hmm. you can tell in each room, like that they really like, had an idea of what they wanted it to look like. And it's beautifully done because um, they were both antique dealers so they had really good eyes and it's a very old house so they had a really good eye of, of how to fix it up that I would never have been able to do because I don't know anything about that um, but his wife passed away and then he couldn't live in it anymore because um, it's too painful so also like knowing that and then and then yeah changing things and we haven't changed much but even just like our art is very like much more modern and kind of strange and their taste is very like very traditional classic like it's like I mean this house is the uh, the main part is from 1726 and then mm -hmm. the addition is from 1884 so it's just like a really really old house so everything's like very antique looking and even like the electricity like they redid the electricity it's new but they like got somebody to make it look like old electricity to like keep the kind of mm -hmm. antique feel things like that so yeah, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, you know, no matter how many changes we try to make, you know, those, those essential elements of it still remain the same. There's only so much we can change. <laughs> and I think it, it speaks a lot about human nature too. I mean, our foundations internally, you know, are, are pretty stable. Um, and so even entering into someone's life and meeting someone new, starting a new relationship, you know, shifts can happen, but I think at our core, we tend to tend to stay pretty stable in our foundations, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what's unique about, has me thinking about, uh, as I was sharing 
about the people that impacted me. I think what's unique about our vocation is that it's our personal histories that shape how we work. I certainly believe that I'm defined by the people that I serve, which I've come to humbly discover is the military and veteran communities. Um, these are the people that I want to support and most importantly, the people that I want to learn from. And I suggest that because I think our patients teach us more about human nature than any book, course, or class ever will. I think once you find a population that you want to work with, I mean, these, these are the people that are going to continue to challenge you and inspire you in our clinical work. Um, and a consistent theme and narrative that, that I've heard more recently is, is this, this sense of, can I, can I make an impact on someone? And am I significant enough to you as I shared about the people in my life, you know, making an impact and making shifts. I think our patients come in wanting to impact someone, you know, that that's our concern, the heart of the concern as humans of, you know, am I significant enough to you that I can remain a memory in your mind that I can shift you and move you in some way, leave an impression on you so that you'll remember me when I'm gone. And that's kind of how I think about this home is like, am I, am I removing their memories? Am I erasing something? But I think uh, underneath all of that, you know, what they created is still there. Um, the memories that, that they created in here, that they built here are, are still here in their minds as well. Um, and in my analysis, that experience, I think was the most transformative experience for me, which is what I finally felt after, I don't know how long, but I was in analysis for about three years. Um, and I don't know how much, how long it must have been into my analysis, but to come to the realization that my analyst really cares about me, <laughs> to have that kind of, that feeling, it was a, I don't remember exactly what was said or what session it was, but I remember the, the visceral reaction that I had in my gut of, oh my God, this guy, this guy cares, <laughs> you know, he really cares about me. And that, that was the shift for me is seeing that, oh, I had, I had an impact on this person and this person is, is changed in some way because of me. And, and I can now feel that, that they care about me. Um, my analysis was, was rich and abundant with interpretations, intellectual discussions, of course, analyzing my behaviors, my patterns, my history, what, whatever it may be. But that wasn't the transformative agent. <laughs> the, the healing agent, I think, in all treatments, what constituted my change, it did not come about by my thinking about who I am and reflecting, although it's a very important and necessary part of the work. I felt that my change came about through my emotional contact and my relationship to my analyst and that intimate relationship, being vulnerable in front of someone, unfolding and revealing the parts that I hid away from everybody else. And in revealing those parts to him, those parts that I deemed unsafe at one point in my life and discovering that who I am underneath, that that person is actually valuable and important and that I can reveal that person to the world I realized that it's safe to do that because it was safe to do it with him. And so by making an impact on my analysts and believing that I had an impact, I discovered that I can impact other people and that I matter to this world. And that was my biggest takeaway. And I think the greatest gift that my analysis could give me. And of course, I'm 
I'm simplifying and summarizing a three year, four time a week analysis, but I want to share that to those that are in therapy, you know, what you gain is, is not in the worksheets. It's not in the pamphlets. It's not in the handouts that you read or the breathing exercises. Although those things are very important. Um, at least in my view, in analytic work, that's not where the growth lie. I think it's in the foundation of the relationship that you build together with your, with your therapist, with your analyst. That's the transformative agent. Um, I don't know your thoughts about that, but that's kind of how I, how I view treatment in general. Uh, yeah, no, I think absolutely. It's the, the, the therapeutic relationship is the transformative aspect. And um, I love how you've kind of built on it. It's like thinking about the ancestry in the home, thinking about the ancestry, like to, on the land that we're on and in society mm -hmm. and all the people that have built it to where we are now. And then that, that, that impact that everybody's had over time and throughout history. And then in real time, like these, this is, this work is still going on. We're still like building and impacting and making memories with one another and influencing one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would say that the, the basis, I mean, I think it doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, the basis of all human life is relationship, our ability to be in relationship, connect to others, depend on others, support others. I mean, we are socialized from the day we are born to know how to be with another person. And we can't escape being with other people. We can't escape society. <laughs> we are embedded in it. And we are relational creatures. That is who we are. And so when I think about treatment, I, I think it really, it's socializing us in a way, in the same way that our, our parents, um, the purpose of development is to, to learn how to be a human with other humans. Um, I was thinking about Freud and his notion of the talking cure. And I thought about that as I was formulating my thoughts. And I thought, you know, the talking cure is not a cure based on intellect. I think it's really a cure based on emotional intimacy, making emotional contact with another human being. As I said before, the, the analytic discussions that I would have with my analysts, you know, just thinking about my behaviors, reflecting on them, that's not what, what um, created any sort of movement within me. It was the emotional experience that was associated with that, which sounds so simple to put into words, but that was the hardest part of treatment. <laughs> it's the unbearable, it's the uncomfortable, it's the unfamiliar. And that's what I hope to communicate to new clinicians and to graduate students, just the intimacy of this relationship. It is so special. And unfortunately it gets, it gets reduced to a formula and to a manual when it's it's really not, it's, it's something that's so unique to, to each and every person. Um, and so that's what I really, really hope that people understand and, and, and hold sacred is what's created in that room between two people. Yeah, and it was a really good point you made as well. Like even when people do use manualized treatments and do work in more like a CBT way and give homework and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. it that's still not what does it. It's still the relationship yeah. between the people. It's really whatever modality you're working at, at the end of the day. Um, that might feel most comfortable for the therapist to work that way. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, it's really like the the trust that's built in that therapeutic rapport. Exactly, exactly. And and um I'll be honest. You know, when, <laughs> when I was listening to some of the episodes on here and reading people's bios, 
and everything. I had a moment of intimidation because uh, seeing other people's, you know, having so many books published or being distinguished professors or distinguished speakers or whatever it may be. Um, I was really surprised actually that you asked me to be on here, just given the history of the people that you've, <laughs> you've brought onto this podcast. And I bring it up because another feeling that I tend to have that, that I felt um, I benefited from in my analysis was just sometimes I feel like a nobody. And what I mean by that is, you know, in seeing all that people have accomplished in all the people that you've spoken to, I, like I said, felt some sense of intimidation and well, who am I to, to be here and who am I to, to share my thoughts on this podcast when I'm, I'm still a student, you know, I haven't done anything grand or anything, but, but then I remind myself that I wasn't a nobody to my analysts and I'm not a nobody to my patients. I don't need books published. I don't need awards to be special to someone or to be valuable, to make an impact, to heal, to help, to offer. You know, I have things to offer and they don't have to be verified by academia. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I bring that up because I know a lot of, you know, your, your audience tends to be, you know, uh, graduate students and, and maybe new clinicians. And, and I just want to share with those people that truthfully our patients don't care about the degrees on our walls or the awards that we've received. Those things don't matter in the therapeutic space. Now what, what matters is our ability to understand our patients. Can we identify with their pain? Can we hold it for them? Can we carry it for them? And are we allowing ourselves to be impacted by our patients so much so that they are taking up space in our emotional homes. And really that's all that matters. And, and I bring it up because as graduate students, we can feel so intimidated by you know, our, our professors or our superiors and supervisors by all that they've done or all that they've accomplished. And to think that we have to be a certain way or speak a certain way in academia or to be successful in academia. But I would say that all that matters is what happens in the room with you and your patient. That's the only thing that matters. No, you don't need to have a 20 page resume. You don't need to have things on your wall because your patients don't care about that. I, I always go back to the parent-child relationship. It really provides me a model for how I understand my relationship with my patients. But it makes me think, do children really care about having fancy toys or expensive vacations or luxurious things? Children don't care about that stuff. You know, all they want are their parents' presence, their, their parents' attention, taking interest in them, listening to them, supporting them, loving them. That's all children want is the emotional contact. That's the best thing you can give to your child. And the best thing you can give to your patients is your presence. And so, to the clinicians that might feel like nobody's sometimes, this is just a reminder that you are everything to your patients. You're a somebody and that you matter to them. Yeah, and I've had a few analysis and I must say my my best analysis is with a candidate, with somebody in training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because they weren't so like sure of themselves yeah. um, and he just like kind of took a step back and really listened and was really like trying to be present instead of just like, yeah being over intellectualized like maybe my training analyst was <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I one of the things that I learned in, in my analytic training which you know is still sticks with me to this day is 
our professor, he said, many analysts, they work from their super ego. Mm-hmm. He said, you need to work from your ego. You know, you need to work from your heart. Don't, don't go in there with expectations or thinking, you know, everything or, you know, intellectualizing everything. You're going in there with your heart. You're making an emotional connection to someone. And that's the hardest thing. It, it really is so challenging. And I don't think it can be taught. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be experienced. Um, in my cohort, I found that those of us that were in analysis, in our own treatment, not only did we better understand the material, you know, we can, we can really wrap our heads around what was being discussed, but emotionally, we were able to just like pinpoint uh, what was happening emotionally in the room a lot more, a lot more so than those that weren't in their own treatments. And so that's why I'm, I'm always stressing the importance of someone being in their own either analytic treatment or their own therapy, because otherwise, you'll never understand how vulnerable it is for your patients to step into that room. Um, I think I used to supervise uh, some students and it was, uh, it was interesting to see the expectations that they had of their patients. They thought, okay, well, you know, they're coming in for therapy that they're, they were expecting them to be able to just come in and kind of share their life story with them and open it up, open up to them because, well, that's therapy, quote unquote, that's what you do. So of course, they're just going to come in and open up to me. And they were so surprised to see how, of course, resistant and ambivalent many patients may feel because it's really scary to be vulnerable. And especially when you're meeting someone new, your therapist is a stranger at first. And what they had to learn is, you know, emotionally, uh, of course, we may think this is a, a working relationship. You're coming to, to speak to your therapist because you think that's going to help you get better. But emotionally, it's still a relationship. And so emotionally, it still feels terrifying and scary. Um, a friend of mine also started therapy recently, and she, she gave me a call after one of her first sessions. And I was so surprised to hear what she said. She said, you know, I felt like I shared too much. And she said, you know, I think I just shared too much with her and um, I'm I'm feeling kind of weird about it. And I thought that was so profound, right? Because if we take a look at what therapy is on paper, you are supposed to share. (laughs) That's what's supposed to happen. But emotionally, people don't understand how terrifying it still feels. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I was in analysis for three years and it took me a long time to get comfortable with my analysts. And of course, a three-year analysis is considered pretty short. I'm sure yours are much longer than mine. <laughs> um, but still, you know, I, I struggled with, with being vulnerable with him, even though I was seeing him four times a week. And so this is just to normalize that experience of, you know, you may have expectations of, of what therapy is and what you're supposed to do, quote unquote, but emotionally, it's going to feel terrifying emotionally. It's going to, it's going to feel very um, uncomfortable and unfamiliar and that's okay. That's, that's part of the process. And like you said earlier, if there's a part of yourself that you learn to like close off or put away for some reason, when you were younger, it's going to feel Mm -hmm. really vulnerable to allow that part to see the light again, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, despite me sharing that, of, of course, being in your own therapy is, is very important for early clinicians. I want to also, you know, 
stress the importance of being properly trained <laughs> um, because I think, you know, the graduate training is, is not very long for many. And I would say for myself, I pursued additional training and uh, on top of my analytic training. Um, and I want to just encourage early clinicians that seeing how important this role is, seeing how sacred what you hold for your patients is, it is so important that you take it seriously and that you prepare yourself and preparing yourself by getting the necessary training, you know, being in your own treatment, seeking supervision and consultation whenever you feel stuck or whenever you don't know what's going on in the room, uh, consult the literature, read books, do whatever you need to do. It's something that you need to constantly prepare yourself for. And, you know, I think the biggest dangers, and this is something that we learned in our graduate program is the biggest dangers are when people graduate and then they go off, do whatever it is that they're doing, get licensed, and then that's it. They stop learning. And I think that's when the dangers happen in treatment where people, you know, really start to act irresponsibly or unethically. And, you know, to those of you that may already be licensed, may already be finished with your graduate programs, I would say, you know, that the process is a, it's a continual learning process. And so just please ensure that you're training yourself as much as you can and, and staying up to date on things and, and always revisiting, you know, yourself and your motivations, your desires, because I think in the same way that our patients come in with their desires to want to impact someone or, or whatever their needs may be to come into treatment. Clinicians, of course, we're human. <laughs> we come in with similar desires as well. I think we want to matter to someone. We want to be important to someone. But those are our desires that can get in the way of treatment and really impinge on a patient's progress. Um, and so those are just things that I always tend to share wherever I present or wherever I speak because I, I, I just take that role very seriously and I um, really care about the people that come in, come in the treatment. I just want to make sure that people are doing what they need to do to be responsible, to take care of those people that are, that are being so vulnerable, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that's just my feel about making sure you get properly prepared. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, now for me, I've been doing this so long that um, it all feels very natural, but you, you saying that reminds me of like when you first start seeing people um, mm -hmm. like in the beginning of graduate school and how much it brings up in yourself as well, like and confronting and be, sitting with other people's trauma and like can bring up own memories of your, your own or, you know, it can be very overwhelming. And that's why having like great supervision and like, you know, having like groups where we would all mm -hmm. talk amongst our co cohort about what's going on um, with us and with patients was really useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, having having a support system in place is, is so necessary. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, parents, uh, either a single parent or maybe a, a household with two parents that don't have any other support systems in place and they can easily feel depleted and easily, you know, um, be under-resourced and under-supported. And, and I think as clinicians, you know, and I, I know some people may have reservations about, um, paralleling the parent-child relationship with the clinician and, and uh, patient relationship, but I'm a Kleinian. <laughs> I, I was trained in British object relations, and that's really what I resonate 
towards. And that's, that's really how we understand our relationship with our patients. It's similar akin to the parent-child. And so whenever I think of clinicians needing support, I think of parents needing support, you know, and we all need support to be able to thrive and to be successful in what we need. And so having, like you said, a, a group with your cohort or a group of other clinicians where you can just consult and, and really um, receive the support and supervision that you need, or even the accountability. Um, I think that's important as well. I, I have a colleague, him and I, we, we work very similarly and we were in many super group supervision environments together. And then even after that, we continue to hold each other accountable. We would continue to meet with each other, discuss our patients and um, really just, you know, be honest and raw and give each other what each other needed to ensure that our patients were being properly treated. Yeah, and I always found also when whenever I did talk about somebody in supervision or peer supervision, um, you could always see, even though you don't bring it into the session, obviously, mm -hmm. and like say, oh, I was talking about you in supervision and this happened. Yeah. You could still see like a shift in them in some way. Like it always felt like the treatment shifted um, mm -hmm. after it kind of processed them with somebody else. Yeah, exactly. And so we can't do this alone. <laughs> and I think what's it's, it's quite ironic because we, if we look at what we do, we are working alone, quote unquote, you know, we're alone in our office with our patients. It's just us doing the work with them. But as I shared with, with you before, kind of the fact that we're housing people within us. Mm -hmm. So the people that supervise us, the people that are supporting us, consulting with us, we carry those people with us. So we're not working alone. You know, I, I hear my analyst's voice in my head when I'm working with a patient or I hear my supervisor's voice in my head. So we carry those people with us and that's our support system that become a part of that, that emotional home. <laughs> so to new clinicians, make sure you find a group, make sure you find your people and that you're consistently supporting each other um, for your patients. <laughs> Yeah, and I love the idea of thinking of it as your emotional house and everybody kind mm -hmm. of has a room in your house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, something about this move. I mean, uh, <laughs> things have become very symbolic lately and I, that's partly, you know, why I'm here. I'm talking about my art project. <laughs> um, but my project, The Couch, it started really during my analysis in the most difficult and challenging times of my analysis. Mm. And yet... I saw the most beauty in it, not just inside of the consulting room, but outside of the consulting room. I mean, something shifted within me where everything became symbolic, everything became metaphorical. I mean, you know, me talking about this house and emotional hot, like I would have probably never been able to come up with that if I hadn't been in analysis. And I really be began to see everything through that lens um, and immediately wanted to capture it. Um, I happened to always dabble into photography. So it was something that felt very comfortable to me. And so when I thought of creating something, I immediately it just felt like picking up the camera was the right thing to do. And of course, simultaneously in my analysis, I was in my graduate program. I was in analytic training, seeing patients myself. And I would be sitting across from a patient and without analyzing or interpreting anything, I just simply began to notice their presence in the room, their body on the couch, how they utilize the couch, whether it be attempting to hide oneself in the corner of it or clinging or picking at the fabric of it or slamming their hand down. 
grabbing the pillow and hugging it, laying down on it, putting their feet up and finding comfort in it. All of these behaviors framed on this seemingly irrelevant item, but it serves a purpose. Um, the couch was a part of the treatment, whether they used it to cope or to hide or to release their frustration, to relax, to get comfortable. The couch is a part of your treatment and it symbolizes so much. It's not just you sitting on it. I think it, it really is an extension of how you're using your treatment. And so I began to think this, what I'm looking at right now, this is a piece of art and I want to capture this piece of art. It's a piece of art to depict humanity, one, but simultaneously a, a really a tribute to those that embark on this treacherous journey of healing. And it's something that deserves to be documented, I think, to, to demonstrate the strength and bravery of those that go to treatment. And I titled it The Couch for that very reason. <laughs> And I think therapy in itself is an embodied act. And I think now with the movement of teletherapy, that it takes it away from that experience, unfortunately. In my analysis, the couch symbolized so much. And the image of my analyst's couch, the feelings associated with it, that will always be imprinted in my mind. And I feel like uh, it's almost like we're, we're mourning the loss of that with teletherapy because we don't have that full embodied experience of, of bringing your body into a room and sitting in front of your, your therapist or your analyst or laying down, you know, with your analyst behind you, all of that is, is a bodily experience. And so the, the couch during that very difficult time of my analysis, it became my deepest fear because I knew once I sat down or laid down on that couch, I would experience discomfort. I would be talking about things I didn't want to talk about. I would be feeling things that I didn't want to feel. You know, the parts of me that I tried desperately to get rid of or desperately to deny, you know, they, they come alive on that couch. <laughs> All that I kept hidden away was, was slowly revealing itself on that couch. And I had no control, which was terrifying because we know the unconscious, right? She's a sneaky witch, but she's also, our guardian and our protector. And that was what was so terrifying about it. Is I felt like my unconscious was moving. My unconscious was, was um, generating something there and I wasn't aware of it, which was what was scary initially at first. So the couch really embodied all that I feared. Um, but at the same time, it symbolized kind of a cradle, a crib, <laughs> because in that discomfort, I was able to experience something new the containment, the understanding, and the care that my analyst offered me. And so from there, uh, my project was born. And this is the only printed piece that I have of it. <laughs> so I just decided to put it up here. Um, this is one of my favorite, favorite ones. Uh, I actually submitted this to an art show in Los Angeles. And this was displayed there two years ago. And I've kept it ever since. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones. Um, but yeah, as you can see, just all the emotions that come along with being on a couch and, and having to share yourself with someone. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's one of those pieces. <laughs> yeah, and the vulnerability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all the pictures that you've shared, like on your Instagram and that sort of thing, they're so beautiful. Thank you. And it's, it's really morphed over the years, um, you know, 
this was the beginning. This was couch part one. And now I'm in couch part two <laughs> because this is a lot of what I felt um, initially in my analysis. And when I think back to that, I don't think I could create something like this again, just because it was so visceral. It was so raw in that moment. And I don't, I, I don't think it's a necessarily a bad thing that I don't think I could create something like this again, because that's who I was then. This is who I am now. So the couch looks very differently um, now and, and that's okay. Um, but I've been very intentional um, in shooting individuals that I want it to be unique. I don't, I don't want it to be something that I'm dictating or directing. You know, I, I really just want people to show up as they are and bring whatever they want to bring in there. There really aren't any expectations. I don't have rules. You know, I think people come in and they're, they expect some sort of guideline or structure and similar to therapy, right? People come in, they expect um, a rule book. They expect to know how to do things, but it, it really is such a, natural experience it's it's not something that can be reduced to rules or structure so I just tell my models you know sit on the couch and we'll just go from there and whatever they want to talk about whatever they want to do they do um and similar to treatment as well you know you get you get in or sorry you get out what you put in um and so therapy analysis it, it takes effort it takes showing up and so, you know, this is as well a tribute to those that are showing up for themselves continually by going to therapy or being in analysis. They're, that's them showing up for themselves. Um, now, of course, I'm photographing models. It's not patients. <laughs> I've, been, I've actually been surprised that some people have asked me if these were my patients that I was photographing in therapy. And I was like, that is not, that would never on no, you know, in no universe would that be okay to do. That's completely unethical. Um, but, you know, it, it does reflect, it's more so a reflection of my analysis than, than my patient's treatment. You know, I, I do try to be responsible and keeping those two things very separate. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about it as well in the sense that you know, although I feel like it's a reflection of my analysis, I'm still behind the lens. I'm not really putting myself in front of the lens a lot of the time. And it, it really just got me thinking of that, that fear of vulnerability, because I may be the artist, but I'm, I'm, I may also be hiding by taking pictures of other individuals. Um, of course, the unconscious is always communicating, not only in our actions, but in our creations. I think who I am comes out in my photographs, even though I'm not in the photo. You know, you're, you're seeing the world, you're seeing these individuals through my eyes, through my lens. But I can't help but think, you know, what is it saying about me also that I'm keeping myself behind the lens and then not wanting to fully reveal myself. And that just shows how much strength it takes, not only of, of patients to come to therapy, but of models to come onto this couch that and this project that I've created and they're really putting themselves out there in a way that I'm even terrified to do. You know, I'm always hesitant to, to post photos of myself or share my story explicitly. I mean, it, it, it's hard. It's really hard to do. <laughs> and so I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a phase right now where I'm really trying to consider what I want to do moving forward of like, do I want to re reveal more of myself? There's a risk in that. That's very risky. 
um, or do I want to continue to just share other people's stories, which is equally as important. Um, but then I'm hiding. I'm still hiding and I'm not being fully revealed in that sense. So that's kind of where I am <laughs> right now. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point, too, because I feel like a lot of therapists are used to being on this side and listening. Mm -hmm. And probably that was pretty natural for them, for us. And that's how we ended up in this profession, you know, so the more to yeah. more, reveal yourself more publicly is probably not doesn't feel as natural as maybe as some extroverts feel. <laughs> yeah, and, and it really does feel like a risk, like I said to me, I just, you know, I'm, I haven't had the best experiences with with being vulnerable, of course, in my analysis, I was able to do that and that, that blossomed and, um, you know, helped me to feel more comfortable in the outside world to share myself, but you know, people are still mean, <laughs> people are still, you know, uh, critical. And so I just, I, I bring that up because I want to be transparent. You know, I, I want to share that I still have fears of being vulnerable. And so, you know, my models are, are really, are really being strong in what they're doing and they're taking a risk by putting themselves out there. And it's a risk that I'm still unwilling to take. <laughs> so just want to disclose that you know artists and clinicians were we're, we're afraid of vulnerability as well so you don't have a self-portrait on the couch i do i've taken some um but i rarely rarely uh, post them um i like to take them for myself just because you know recently when i have been or going through my photos and organizing them i realized i don't have a lot of pictures of me and I think in general, it's just great. It doesn't have to be something that needs to be posted, but just a rem like a memory or a remembrance of yourself to have photos of yourself. Um, because when I look at a photo, immediately, uh, not only is a memory sparked, but a feeling is sparked. And so I can usually you know, take myself back to that moment and remember what, what I felt like. And so I want to capture more of those experiences just for myself <laughs> so I can look back one day and remember the things I was feeling, remember the things I was doing. Um, yeah, just a, a little treasure for myself. <laughs> yeah, my husband's a photographer. And when we first got together, I noticed after like a couple of events or trips, it was like all his photographs and he wasn't yeah. in any of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so now I always consciously try to make it a point to like make sure I take photos of him too, even though I'm not really yeah. someone that takes a lot of photos or I didn't used mm -hmm. to be. Uh, I never really would think of it. Um, and then, of course, I met him and he would just take millions of photos. So I didn't have to think of it. But then when I started realizing it was like all pictures of me and like landscapes and nothing of yeah. him, I started yeah. making sure to take photos. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm sure. And he probably doesn't realize the, the importance of it, you know, but he'll I'm sure he'll be thankful for that later on. A few years down the road, he'll be thankful of all those photos you took of him. <laughs> mm, exactly. Yeah, because he's missed. You know, a good swath of his life. He doesn't have pictures of himself. It's just pictures of like his daughter, everyone else. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of uh, where I'm at with regards to my photography and, and where I am. I think I also wanted to make note that I haven't photographed anything other than people. And I think that's not surprising <laughs> being a, a psychologist. I I never had any interest in, in photographing anything else. I've always just been interested in, in the human mind and human emotion. And I wanted the opportunity to capture it with a photo. And another reason, you know, I, 
I see great images everywhere. You know, the world is filled with images. But what I notice is that I find myself wanting to know more. I mean, we, we get a, an amazing image of someone, but we don't hear about who this person is or, you know, what their story is or what they're feeling in that photo. And I felt like that was the gap. That's the gap in the photography world is we don't always get more than what the image is showing. And so that's partly why I started sharing people's stories because I felt like it would help people to, to connect with the image in a deeper way and you know to, to resonate with some story to feel to see that they're not alone in, in a certain struggle that that the person may be sharing um and to, to really just build that sense of community on my page but just in general i think photographers can do a better job of of sharing who this person is and and you know what their story is what their background is i think that that would help us feel more connected to an image so that's kind of the the direction I'm headed more towards now sharing stories to help people connect uh connect with one another and and create a sense of community with that yeah I mean I'd love to hear about your artwork if you don't mind sharing um yeah my artwork it's evolved a lot in the past year um in that my mom's an artist I've always been around art mm. and um had a lot of like friends that were artists and musicians and that sort of thing but I never considered myself an artist I was like I'm gonna be a scientist I'm gonna yeah. be a doctor you know go to go learn about the mind um and I started just doing it maybe I guess like about 10 years ago, I had a roommate who was a creative arts therapist mm. and she um, was, I was just like really stressed out about something. And she was like, you need to make art. And I was like, I'll do whatever. Just like, <laughs> give me the, give me the materials. And we just basically started like drawing and filling around. She had, all, she had a whole studio in the apartment. So we just started like playing around with all different things and it was just so nice. And I guess I've just yeah. been kind of doing it ever since. And then I got into the cut-ups and like cutting up language and like cutting up papers that I had written and like rearranging the words to see what they would say. And so mm -hmm. then a lot of it was just kind of textual based for a while where I was more interested in what what the kind of poems said that came out of like cutting up writing rather than what it looked like. Mm -hmm. um, and then last year, one of my best friends was killed by her partner and I started making portraits of her um, of old mm -hmm. photos that I had of her and us, because um, I've known her since we were teenagers. And then just like putting like halos around her or flowers or things that I thought, I don't know, fit or just trying to like bring her alive or, you yeah. know, I don't know. Um, and then I just started making all sorts of portraits. So like this past year, I've been making a lot of portraits of like different people I've known that have passed away or mm -hmm. people that are still alive or artists that I like, you know, things like that, so trying not mm -hmm. to make it too morbid <laughs> but yeah, um this is not morbid at all it seems like you're kind of like this is a like a, a tribute to them kind of honoring them in some way by creating this yeah and exactly. i do notice yeah a lot of a lot of collage I've, I've seen like the things that you've posted is is a lot of collages so tell me you know kind of the the um you know the, the motive behind that you know the, the purpose behind a collage um, well, I think collages are great in that anybody can make them. So you don't have to like necessarily have like any innate talent or skill or mm -hmm. training uh, really to make them, which I think is wonderful. And that's, that's also kind of what happened is that I was writing about um, artists that use like collage and the cut up method and like found mm -hmm. objects like cutting up magazines. 
um, and photographs and things like that. And then just rearranging them and putting them together in new ways and in, in ways that were kind of more surrealist. Um, and then like one of William Burroughs, one of the one of the people that did that, I was like watching YouTube videos of his lectures and like at, at the end of all his talks, he's like, you should do this. Anyone can do this. Like anyone can do it. Just grab a magazine or a newspaper yeah. and like cut it up or cut out the pictures you like and like make something. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really great. It's really like, you know, sublimative and like transformative and helps you process and um, it comes out especially when you use words, they like say the funniest things sometimes. And after hearing him say that, like in a bunch of lectures, I was like, oh, maybe I should try it. (laughs) And so now whenever I talk about it, I say the same thing, like really you should try it because it really um, helps you see things in a new way, especially I, I, he didn't say specifically to cut up your own writing. um, But when I started cutting up my own writing, like academic writing, it would, it would like rearrange all of my academic you know trained Mm. ideas and like put things together that I would never put together uh, consciously Um, but then it would make a kind of sense where I'd be like oh that's actually really interesting I never thought of putting that and that together Um, so it just ended up helping me like write more because I got would get generate new ideas from it Mm -hmm. and there's something there's something also symbolic. I mean, here I go again, thinking symbolically about things, but, you know, taking pieces of different things and then putting it together, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I'm in the same way that, you know, the way I'm saying that we, we have pieces of people inside of us. And so you're creating something new with it. And I'm also a, a very big um, climate activist, <laughs> a very eco-conscious. And so the idea of repurposing something, mm-hmm. creating something new out of something that already exists, I think that's also a great way to create art and not use up resources and not, you know, cause damage um, environmentally when you can just use something that's already there. Something that I enjoy doing as well is just, you know, purchasing, um, I'll go to like a thrift store and I'll just get an old canvas. There might already be something on that canvas, but painting over it and creating something new out of it, which is something I found to be fun and also very um thirsty. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And it goes along with the idea, like you said in the beginning of like, you know, all these different layers all have their mm-hmm. like, contribution to the final product. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing about that. Thank you for asking. I was curious. I was curious about the whole, the, the, the motivation behind the collage. So I feel like it, it can, it is very symbolic. Yeah. And it's just evolved over time. I never, uh, I gave a talk in Stockholm a couple of years ago at, at more of like a like a conference that had more artists, not not specifically psychoanalysts. And um, everyone there thought I was a, like an artist. And when they saw like Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, they're like, oh, there's not very many people with PhDs in fine arts. And I was like, oh, no, I'm a psychologist. They were like, oh, what? Um, but they, you know, they really... Um, I've totally lost my train of thought. I forgot what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm surprised that people are surprised of how many artists are either uh, psychologists or psychoanalysts, because I feel like the endeavor psychoanalysis is an artistic endeavor. You know, diving into the mind is, is very artistic. One, one thing that a, a professor shared with me as well, which I still have yet to do, but I want to do it. He said that reading poetry every day helps with your clinical work, <laughs> you know, of just being able to access different different layers of, of the human experience. And he was sharing that poetry really highlights that, really brings that um, and puts it into language. And I think 
it just resonates with the language that we use in the room with patients. And I think poetry can help bring that to life even more. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea. Yeah, and it may, it's like more layered and multifaceted um, than like linear narrative a lot of the time. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to, that was, that's what I was saying with that, that conference. Um, yeah, I just explained, I'm like, I never like meant to be an artist, you know, it just kind of happened over time. Um, and yeah, I really love it. And I think it's, that's why I love like psychoanalysis and the arts, because I see how they're, like you said, the, the psychoanalysis is creative. And I see how they both like really help in processing. Um, and like, for example, when my friend passed, you know, that's clearly how I was processing for the yeah. first few months. And it, you know, it really helps. So people should do it. Make Definitely. art. Go to therapy. <laughs> yeah, just find, <laughs> find some creative endeavor. I think I'm a better clinician because of it. You know, and I'm also a better artist, I think, because of it. Because I can access those layers emotionally, you know, because of my clinical work. And then as an artist, or sorry, then as a clinician, you know, can, can capture it you know, in the room emotionally with, with the patient as well. Um, and so, yeah, to those new clinicians, uh, this is, this is your encouragement to, to take some art class. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Leanne Bishara. For more, follow her and the couch on Instagram at Lebish Psychology, L-E-B-I-S-H Psychology, or email her at lebishphotography at gmail.com to be a part of the project. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. You can support the podcast at our Patreon patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23 carl that's v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a-r-l your support is very appreciated thank you so much for supporting rendering unconscious podcast and all of my other creative endeavors and now my consciousness changes from the album The Pathways of the Heart, created for Jessica Marshall. You can find this album and all our other music at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com.
but now they were back to being awkward again. Her, the present situation, by dampening the feeding toned portions of the often see severe anxiety and depression because the patient adapts to a fact that it's cooler in that school I go to and even cooler in is therefore always potentially subversive to those attachments. Attachment even at to be, which is then solidified by the repetition of similar experiences that validate that. Impulsive makes quick decisions without carefully considering the consequences of the decisions. Transference as psychoanalytic method were indisputable to forensic. Psychoanalysis really began with Freud's theory on dreams. Rather than creating a body of not knowing how to rid myself of them, polluting my insides where I've no right to be. But this is no ordinary case. You know, I love that girl and wanted to marry her. But although that's all past and gone, I can't help feeling anxious about her all the time. Down and says in a low voice, wife, stretching out his hand, Pierre, there, look, thirty yards away from them, the head of a white fox, the sexual response and the female orgasm, unquenchable fire, although it is a force, it is a work that leads to an intimate, the body is prepared, it stimulates movement, pose, that issue from, or intelligence, hazardous problems are created. How was it even possible that a woman asked herself while realizing that watching this expected it, but there it was, they just kept on. My consciousness changes and I'm able what the other requires in my blood Lilith in my body Lilith in my and you Sunday night dresses dying out back on a stretch attachments Kerouac 